0: Why don't you turn with me again to John, John, chapter 16, Uh, John, chapter 16. Uh, This morning, we're going to finish out Jesus's farewell words to his disciples before he prays uh, with them and for them. In John 17, we're going to be looking at John 16, 16, all the way down to verse 33. Let me pray. And then we'll consider this text here together. Let's pray. Father God, we do ask that you would show us Christ, reveal his glory through this passage. We pray that you would help us to see uh, that he has indeed overcome the world. So we pray that you would give us the confidence that goes with Jesus' teaching and this perspective that we might live as disciples in the age of the Spirit with boldness. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Amy and I, uh, by God's grace, have, have six children. And every time we go to the hospital and have gone to the hospital, we, um, we always go with two names, a boy's name and a girl's name. Now, nowadays, that's become fairly rare. If you go back 40, 50 years, everyone had to do this, right? Uh, but, but we like, we like to go to the hospital and be surprised, not knowing if we're gonna have a boy or a girl. We could have found out months ago. We, we're grateful, uh, in our case, that each time that it was healthy, but we didn't wanna know. We said, don't tell us. We'll look away. You know, don't, don't tell us. Uh, we don't wanna know if it's a boy or a girl. And, and so we go in with, with two names. Now, some of you know that in the Lord's strange providence, we had girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy. So we were always going back to previous names. Go, do We still like the one we didn't use. And I go, we're going add one. And, and we, would, we would go with both. And I, I've talked to Sue and, and I said, okay, Sue, you know, it's great. I'm on I'm, I'm board for whatever here. Uh, why? And one of the primary reasons that she has given is, man, there's there's so much pain it gives me another thing to look forward to right there's an extra surprise right not only the baby but you know which baby you know i I don't know uh particularly my favorite story um is uh with our third we thought for sure it was a boy and uh everyone just about everyone who who is bold enough to say to a pregnant woman what they think it is said it was also a boy so we just had this momentum and then the midwife in the hospital says do you think it's a boy or a girl and we just kind of without hesitating said well obviously we don't know but we think it's probably a boy and she said well what, what's the boy's name and we said well if it's a boy it'll be jack so you know, we're in labor and 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 so we're we're literally saying come on jack come on jack and, and, and we are cheering on this baby and the baby arrives, Nora, right? And it just added to the joy. It's a great story, but it's added, added to the joy, right? The added surprise that the baby has arrived. There's a boy, Is a girl. We don't know the announcement, be able to share it with family and friends. Jesus takes that exact point less about the gender, more about the joy of the baby, and says, okay, let me use that to illustrate the point I'm making. There will be pain, and there will be suffering, and then there will be joy. And it's not just that for the disciples, it's pain, then suffering. It's that the pain... sorry, it's not just that there'll be pain and suffering, then joy, but it's that the pain produces the joy. So it's not just A then B, it's A produces B. And Jesus says, the best example is how all of you came into the world, right? It's it's suffering and pain and anguish and then joy. The child is here and all the pain and suffering is still there, but it fades. The joy of meeting the baby face to face. What a joy. What a joy. Jesus is going to get to that illustration in just a minute, but we want to pick up in verse 16, kind of by way of segue and introduction to get into our text, where Jesus really doesn't start teaching until verse 20. But you remember, he's talking to his disciples, and this isn't a a lecture or a sermon like we would think of it. He's talking with his disciples. And so they're asking some questions, and it's really clear from their questions that they still really don't get it. And they're not really going to get it until hindsight Until looking back, until after his resurrection. And that's still the case. So verse 16 is a little bit of a transition. And Jesus uses this phrase, a little while. A little while. He's teaching in the upper room. Perhaps now they're making their way to the garden where Judas will betray him. Tomorrow is the cross. Jesus is comforting them. Looking again at verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. So this is when Jesus dies, is buried. Then he continues, and again a little while and you will see me. This is when he rises and appears to his disciples before the ascension. And and these disciples, these eleven, they don't know what he's talking about. What is all this talk about a little while and? Back in verse 10, he talked about going to the Father. They still don't understand that. What, what was all this talk about going to the Father? So in verses 17 and 18, we have kind of a summary of their confusion. They clearly don't get it. Verse 19, Tim read it earlier. Jesus knew what they were talking about. And so in verse 20, he begins asking, sorry, answering the question that they didn't ask. All right. They were wondering, but they hadn't asked it. And he says, let me answer your question. So in verse 19, he, he summarizes their question. They're, they're wondering about the timing in this little while. And then beginning in verse 20, he gives his answer. And here we're, we're coming into the final words of Jesus's final words. First, we'll have three points in the three sections here. But first verses 20 through 24, we have short term sorrow. Turns to long-term joy. And I think we have to read this passage carefully. First blush, I think we could misunderstand it. Short-term sorrow leads to long-term joy. Jesus is going to tell them what to expect. The world's going to rejoice when I'm crucified. And you're going to see me no longer. And you're going to weep. And you're going to lament. And you're going to be so confused, more confused than you already are. But your sorrow will turn into joy. Their anguish is going to be real and it's coming really quickly for his disciples. But his anguish on the cross for them will turn their anguish into joy in a little while. It's not going to happen right away, right? You have Friday and Saturday and Sunday, and they're not waiting, anticipating. They're waiting, weeping. They're waiting in anguish, in distress in confusion. Jesus had prepared them, predicting his death and resurrection three or four times in the Gospels, but they hadn't gotten it. They didn't, they didn't know what was going to happen. So as we read... Uh, Jesus is teaching here in verse 20. We've got to ask, okay, do we apply it to ourselves directly? How do we think through us now? We, we know he's talking to them then. Is he talking to us in our sorrow now? Waiting for Jesus to appear again, to return for his church. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Is that how we should apply it for ourselves? I think, no, right? So, do we experience the same pattern? Suffering now, then glory. Yes, Paul talks about this. Peter talks about this. It's not glory now, it's suffering now, then glory. That is the pattern. But is Jesus describing our lives as the church as short term pain, as childbearing? No, he's describing the cross, right? He's just said that it's to our advantage that he goes away, it's to our advantage. So his ascension doesn't usher in kind of a second time of sorrow, but a time of the Holy Spirit. We have the spirit now. We have the advantage of his work, convicting and guiding. We have joy now, right? We're living in this time of long term joy. I think that's the implication. I think that's exactly what the analogy in verse 20 means. Look again at at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you. You will weep and lament. Sorry, verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she will have sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought, has been born into the world. The pain produces joy. The cross leads to the resurrection. It's not just death and then life. It's death leading to life. So the pain of delivery leads to the joy of the human being being born into the world. So it's causal, not just chronological. It's not just, okay, there's some contractions and then there's some cuddling. Okay. No, the contractions are leading to the cuddling. This is how uh, one author, Sinclair Ferguson, put it. Jesus is teaching his disciples that suffering becomes the raw material in the Father's hand. And from it, he means to create glory. So there is a pattern. There is an application, but it's, it's not first to us. Ferguson continues. Sorrow will lead to joy. God is the potter. We are his living clay. Sometimes his molding and his shaping of our lives hurts But it has in view our transformation into the image of Christ. This is how Paul puts it. For this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Do you see what God's doing in your life? It's hard to see in the moment. It's hard to see in the pain. But do you see what he's doing through it? So take courage. Endure patiently. Look long term and find hope in Jesus's words. Look in the middle of verse 21 again. She no longer remembers the anguish. What a what a summary of our lives for all eternity. In our passage here, we've talked about long-term joy. Jesus mentions the source, I think, two different ways. Two two sources, we might say, of long-term joy under the first point here. Still, the first is Jesus himself. Jesus is the source of our joy. He is our joy. He brings lasting joy because he is alive. I love verse 22. So also you have sorrow now. And then we expect, but you will see me again. He's already used that phrase three times, but it's not what we find. He says, I will see you again. I will see you again. Uh, The the analogy breaks down, but I, I, I think it might be helpful for us to feel the difference, right? If I told you some years ago, let's say, I saw the Queen of England. You would think, oh, that's an amazing story. You must have been in London, probably on the street somewhere, and the motorcade went by, and maybe you looked in her little chariot of a car, and you saw the Queen of England. But then if I told you the Queen of England saw me, do you see the difference? It's a summoning. There's something significant there. And Jesus doesn't just say, you're going to see me again. He says, no, I'm going to come, and I'm going to see you. I'm going to visit you. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to come to you again. Take heart. And verse 22 continues. Your hearts will rejoice when the risen Christ sees his disciples and they see him. Their hearts will rejoice. It'll be confirmation. He's risen from the dead on the third day. Just like he said, the spirit will bring his words to mind. And then he says, and no one will take your joy from you. Your sorrow turns to joy when Jesus is raised and no one takes your joy from you. Why? No one can take Jesus from you. A living savior has conquered sin and death brings long term joy for his disciples. Jesus is his disciples joy. So threats to their joy may arise, but their joy cannot actually be threatened. Jesus can't be taken from them, so joy can't be taken from them. And they can't be taken from Jesus. So there's no threat. Think of what Jesus said back in chapter 10. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So does this mean that our joy as Christians will never be challenged? No. It'll never ebb. No but it is a flame that cannot die out because the risen Christ cannot die again. Think of of Peter. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Risen Savior, living, reigning, living hope. Do you see... Jesus says our joy is secure because he will rise again. His joy, sorry, his life never ends. And so our joy never does either. For the Christian, sickness may take your strength, but it cannot take your joy. Disappointment may change your plans, but it cannot take your joy. Death. May take your life, but it cannot take your joy because your joy is a person and he lives never to die again. Jesus is the source of his disciples joy. But then he gives a second source, a surprising one. Look again at verse 23. It's answered prayer. And here we need to read carefully. Carefully. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. That is, after the resurrection, I think Jesus is saying, you're not going to ask the same type of questions from a posture of confusion. You're going to be able to look back at what just happened, and you're going to be asking different questions, we might say. You're going to be making different requests. Truly, truly, I say to you, he continues, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. After the resurrection, you'll ask in my name. And the Father will answer. So what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? I think this is good to pause. We do it. Uh, I, I must confess that I have concluded one or two phone calls in my life with, in Jesus' name, amen. It's funny because that's kind of how we hang up with God, so to speak, right? We just kind of throw it out, in Jesus' name, amen. You know. And uh, it's similar to when I've told. Yeah, anyways, there's, there's other things that you'll slip up and say, right? On phone calls, you've got to be careful. Things you say so common. But there's more, there's more going on here, isn't there? To pray in Jesus' name is not only obedience, right? He's commanded us to do this. It's confidence in his promises, but it's to ask. It's to ask for mercy, to intercede, to ask requests for, for Jesus' sake. It's not just the mere mention of his name, but it's drawing encouragement from him in prayer. It's boldness to pray. It's strength to pray. It's hope of acceptance in prayer from him, from Christ on the basis of his mediation for us. So Jesus can say, whatever you ask the father in my name, you'll be praying in my name. Then verse 24 keeps going, until now you have asked nothing in my name. That is, f- prayer wasn't in my name before, before the cross and resurrection. Asking you will receive that your joy may be full. He's talked a good bit about joy in our passage. Verse 20, you saw the word rejoice, joy. Verse 21, joy. Verse 22, rejoice, joy. Now here, at the end of verse 24, joy. In the midst of sorrow, Jesus is teaching his disciples of the power of, of prayer in Jesus' name as a source of joy. He's leaving. How can they ask? Well, they can ask in His name. Will the Father answer? Yes, yes. Notice its intended purpose. The end of verse 24 their complete joy. So Jesus Himself risen, prayers answered. These are the sources of long-term joy for the Christian. Point number two, point number two, verses 25 through 28, the father himself loves you. These are the final words of Jesus's final word. The father himself loves you. Jesus concludes by referring to the hour. Verse 25, the hour is coming. Then again, down verse 32, the hour is coming. This is the hour of his death, his burial, his resurrection. This is the culmination of the Passion Week. It's upon them now. It's here. It's coming. It's arrived. It's at the door, we might say. Jesus has been speaking in figures of speech, but now he'll be more direct, more plain about the Father, we might say. So much will become plain to them, these disciples, after his resurrection, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. None of them really put it together before now. None of them really will until after the resurrection. when the Holy Spirit will continue to unpack the significance of Jesus' life and ministry as the Messiah. Soon it will be plain. What Jesus says next there in verse 26, I think is surprising. Look at verse 26. In that day, you will ask in my name. He's repeating what he just said back in verse 23. After my resurrection, you won't ask the confused questions. You'll intercede. You'll ask the Father in my name. Prayer for Christians is marked by prayer in Jesus' name on the basis of his finished work. But then the question might arise. Okay, by asking in Jesus' name, by praying like that... Are we going to somehow be distanced from the father? Is my access to the father becoming more limited? Does it mean that I can only ask Jesus for things and then Jesus kind of passes on the note to the father? Jesus explains his answer. He answers those questions. No, at the end of verse 26 and verse 27 into verse 28. Look at the end of verse 26. And do not say to you, I do not say to you that I will ask the father on your behalf. What a fascinating statement. I do not say that I will ask the father on your behalf. Oh, interesting. For the father himself loves you. Beginning of verse 27. The father doesn't need nudging. His hand isn't forced by Jesus so that the father well, I guess I have to start loving sinners now. No, it was the Father's love for the world that sent Jesus into the world. Isn't that what John 3.16 says? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The Father doesn't love you because Jesus died for you. No, Jesus died for you because the Father loves you. I think many in our culture have allowed God's love to diminish their understanding of God's holiness. I think many in the church have done the opposite. A right understanding of God's holiness has led some, maybe some of you, to diminish his love. Brothers and sisters, God's love is God's holiness, is his goodness, is his justice, and on and on. Right? They cannot be separated from one another. They ought not, cannot be pitted against each other. So linger over Jesus' words here. The Father himself loves you. The father himself loves you. Revisit John three sixteen and linger over the father's love for you. So what do we make of the end of verse 26? I do not say to you that I will ask the father on your behalf. We know from elsewhere in scripture that Jesus intercedes for us. This is precious to us. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Romans eight. Consequently, Hebrews seven, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us, for them. Or first John two one, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. How do we think through those passages and then Jesus's words that I'm not going to bring requests on your behalf? How, how do we think through this? I think those passages, those rich passages are on Jesus's role in our redemption. Jesus is the basis for our acceptance before God, Hallelujah. He is the only way to the father. He is the only grounds. Jesus is the only grounds of our acceptance before holy God. But those verses don't require what I think we can slip into, which is kind of an assembly line mindset with prayer. Where we pray and then that prayer goes down the line to Jesus and then Jesus, if he sees fit, passes that prayer down the line to the father. Jesus is saying, no, that's not how it works at all. I'm not restricting your access to the Father. I'm creating it. Look again at the end of verse 26. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. So Jesus is saying, okay, it's it's not Jesus asking the Father for us, kind of passing the request down the line. It's us asking the Father on the basis of Jesus' finished work for us. In this sense, Jesus isn't asking the father on our behalf at all. We are asking in his name, based on his person and work, his redemption, his righteousness, his perfection, his promises. He, his life is the grounds for our acceptance. He is our only mediator and he intercedes with his blood. And as a result, I have access to God. Unrestricted. Open. Open. Our father isn't distant. He himself loves us, but ready. And only through Jesus, yes, through Jesus, only through Jesus, we have access to our father. This is how one preacher put it. It's as if Jesus said, I've made the way. Now I'm not going to get in the way. Do You see, is this how you view prayer? Access. On the basis of Christ alone, access. So don't let, as perhaps the disciples were tempted to believe, don't let praying in Jesus' name lead to feelings of distance, but to a bold affirmation of access. We come with boldness, with confidence, not in ourselves, but in Christ our Savior alone. Third and finally, in the world, tribulation. In Jesus' peace. What a sweet promise we find here in verse 33. Verse 29 through 33. In the world tribulation, in Jesus' peace. Here in verse 29, the disciples hear something Jesus said and they kind of latch on. And they think he's already speaking without figures of speech. And in in the process, they put their immature faith on full display. They say, in effect, now we get it. We get it. We're tracking with you. And Jesus responds, I think we could say exasperated. You get it now, do you? All right. That's what his question means in verse 31. Do you now believe? You believe it now, do you? And then notice what he says next. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own house and will leave me alone. But make no mistake, Jesus said, I'm not going to be alone. The Father will never abandon the Son. Let's keep reading. Yet I am not alone, end of verse 32, for the Father is with me. Jesus will take the path of suffering. His disciples will not join him on that path. They will scatter. He will be crucified brutally. But his father will be faithful. And then we come to verse 33. Jesus's final, final words. Not the last thing that he will say by any means, but the conclusion of all that he said in chapter 14 and 15 and 16. Uh, As I speak each uh, Sunday morning, uh, I I try to have an introduction that will get your attention. I don't always have an introduction that will get your attention. So if you say, man, pastor this week didn't have a little story for us. I'm sorry. I do aim at that. Sometimes my introduction is just review. But this morning, my introduction was what? Two names to the hospital, childbirth, joy. Where did I come up with that illustration? Not very creative. Jesus came up with the illustration, right? I just used my wife and, and made it contemporary. So that's what I'm doing the introduction. Conclusions is the last thing I get to say to you on a Sunday morning. It's what's going to linger. It's the same reason why the song song that we sing last tends to be the one that you can remember the longest. Right? So if you came to me at 1 o'clock and said, Pastor, what did we sing this morning? I'd be like, I have no idea. But if I did have an idea, it would probably be the last one. It'd probably be the one that I could come up with. I, I know a lot of churches, and I think we often do, where... Uh, after we dismiss, the pianist will play one or two songs, and they'll play the songs we just sung, right? So it'll just kind of be in your mind. It's the last thing you heard. It, it's what lingers with you. It's what you take into the day. That's how sermon conclusions are. So it's the last thing. Summarizing, yes, but it's the last thing. It's what what we need to take with us, what we're likely to remember the most. What does Jesus say last? What's the last thing he says to the eleven Before he heads to the cross. What's the last thing he wants to say to them directly? Jesus's final words really give the purpose for everything he said. Let me let me give you my heart. Let me give you my purpose. Why we we just talked for the last couple hours here in the upper room. Let me give it to you. Here's why I shared all that. Look at verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What a contrast he gives, right? In me, peace. In the world, tribulation. There's two spheres. There's the in me sphere and there's the in the world sphere. We sometimes forget this, but Christians belong in both spheres in the world and in Christ. Being in Christ, abiding in Christ, we remain in the world. Jesus isn't promising peace that is freedom from tribulation. No, he says tribulation is coming. They aren't leaving tribulation for peace. That's not what he's saying. No, they're entering peace in the midst of tribulation. So Christians can know long term joy, not just then in glory, but now joy and peace. Even as we live in a world that is confused, a world of heartache and woe and persecution and opposition and disappointment. We live in both. Christians alone live in both. Do you see our privilege? We alone are in Christ, so we alone can know this peace. We alone can know this joy in the midst of this fallen world. In me, you may have peace, he says. This is the peace that only Jesus can give. This is not a situational calm that your hopings are right around the corner. This is peace that is far more consequential, far more sweeping than that. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, and this you is still as his disciples. So Christians can sing in prison. We'll see this in the book of Acts. When suffering arises, Christian peace still prevails. When Christians ache, they still anticipate. Christians can lament and not languish. They can be, with the Apostle Paul, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. They can know persecution and peace. We can be more than conquerors, Romans 8, as we're faithful under the most difficult of opposition. Allow me to read the end of Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? does that sound like Jesus' words here? or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or sword, or danger. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Notice the context there. Tribulation, persecution, opposition, death. Know in all these things. Not apart from all these things, not by avoiding all these things, not by protecting us from all these things, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So, what the word overcome means conquer the world. We're more than conquerors through him. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when Christians suffer, we're not simply Stoics. We're not simply a tougher lot. We're not gluttons for punishment. No, we do not have the resources to suffer. We do not have the resources to navigate faithfully in this fallen world. We persevere and we know peace in tribulation because of the triumph of Christ, because of the spirit within us. So Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Victory is mine, he says. Just as I defeated the prince of the power of the air, so I've conquered this world. I've made this world's opposition to me and to you in me futile. Pointless. The decisive battle has been fought, not by us, but for us. And Jesus has won. He has conquered. Now, make no mistake. The world fights on. There is still opposition. There is still tribulation. But make no mistake. Christians share in Christ's victory. And so now this peace, even in the midst of opposition, we sang this earlier. Let me read it to you. Midst toil and tribulation. And tumult of her war. She waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious. Her longing eyes are blessed. And with the church victorious. Shall be the church at rest. We cannot be harmed. Not in the end. And we know who triumphs. In the end, so nothing, not even death itself, can separate us from his love. So take heart, brothers and sisters. Take heart. Opposition, take heart. Heartache, take heart. Suffering, take heart. With a victory secured by Christ, we are secure in Christ. Peace. Peace joy not calm not escape but conquered foes and so confidence so take heart this week brothers and sisters at work greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world take heart at school this week take heart as you read the headlines this week more fundamentally I think here is take heart as you go this week as we scatter faithfully as you go on mission as you bring the good news to your neighbors and loved ones this week You go in his name, and so you do not go alone. In the world, tribulation, yes. In Jesus, peace. So take heart. He has conquered the world. That's the truth that Jesus wants to leave with you in his farewell. That's the taste that he wants us as his disciples to have on our tongues and in our mouths as we go this week on mission for him. He is leaving. Opposition is coming, but so is the Spirit. So go, and as you go, take heart. Jesus has conquered the world. Let's pray. Father God, we are reminded. That in the list of those who are thrown into the lake of fire at the end of Revelation, the first group listed are cowards. We confess that we as your disciples are often far too cowardly. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that because he has overcome the world, we can take heart and we can know peace and we can know joy in the midst of tribulation Help us not to be cowardly. Help us to rely on your spirit and to go with boldness, with confidence, not in ourselves, but in our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.